Hey folks, thanks for joining us at Fig Tree Ministries. There's two ways you can keep up with us. The first one is to subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking the subscribe button below. That way you'll get notified every time we upload a new video. The second way is to go to figtreeteaching.com and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month. Each newsletter will highlight one of our videos and include a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your studies. That website again is figtreeteaching.com. Enjoy today's lesson. Friday evening started what's biblically the final festival. Now, there are other Jewish festivals throughout the year, Hanukkah, and Jesus does go to Hanukkah. That's in the book of John. You also have Purim. That's the celebration of, uh, of the events surrounding Esther. So there are other Jewish holidays, but these are the seven holidays that show up in Leviticus. So we're just going to stick to these. So the Festival of Tabernacles started Friday night. And we're going to talk through this holiday. Now, I've already had one question about the name. So Festival of Tabernacles, that's kind of the traditional name. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. Now, a sukkah is a temporary dwelling. Now, whatever that means, temporary dwelling. Some of our Bibles call it tabernacle. Some call it booths. You'll see that today, the, one of the versions that I use. Some of your Bibles say shelters, so the festival of shelters. Either one, it's the same thing. It's the idea of living in a temporary shelter on their journey to the promised land. And that will enter the picture of what the holiday is. Okay, so this holiday started on Friday evening, and it's going to go for eight days, and it will move until next Saturday. We'll talk about that. So the Festival of Tabernacles, as I mentioned, it's an eight-day festival. This is an overall view of what we're going to do today. It's an eight-day festival, and that's going to be a little bit of a significance because it's at the end of our holiday season. It's leading us on to something bigger. So seven is a number of perfection. Eight takes you beyond, and we'll, we'll talk about the idea of that as the Festival of Tabernacles. There's a predominant theme in the Festival of Tabernacles, and it's joy. It's the only, of, the only holiday where God commands you to rejoice in front of him. Now, we'll talk about joy and the idea of giving a commandment for joy. It's imbued with joy, and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, one of the things on my bucket list is to be in Jerusalem during the Festival of Tabernacles, because everybody who's been there for that holiday says you just can't fathom how much joy is there. So it'd be amazing to see and experience that at some point in the future. And then finally, we're going to connect this holiday to the idea of living water. Now, living water is water that's delivered by God, and we'll talk more about that, and that the Bible connects living water, the idea of living water, to the Holy Spirit. So those are three main topics as we uh, go through this holiday today. 
Now, let me do a quick review. Sorry, let's go back to Leviticus 23 here. So if you want to turn in your Bible, we're going to start in Leviticus 23. We'll read a little bit from the Festival of Tabernacles. And then from Leviticus 23, I'm going to move forward in the Bible through the Old Testament to the New Testament. So if you want to follow along as we go along, I'll show you the route we're going to take because everything's going to build up into to Jesus and how he interacts with this festival. And if we don't understand the background, we'll miss, we'll miss what Jesus is up to. Okay, so Leviticus 23 is where we find all of our holidays. This is a quick review because we've done this in the past couple weeks, but we want to see where in the, the whole scheme of holidays does tabernacles fall out. So the holidays go like this. They start with Passover. That's the 14th day of the first month. That's sometime around March to April. Then you have unleavened bread. That's the very next day, 15th day, and first fruits. Now we've noted over the past couple of weeks that Jesus fulfills these perfectly. He's the Passover lamb that's crucified on Passover. He's the unleavened bread that's buried as the unleavened bread of the world. And he's the, as Paul calls him, the first fruit of the resurrection as he's resurrected on the day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday. So one, two, three, Jesus hits those holidays. And these holidays surround the agricultural harvest of barley. So it's following an agricultural holiday and the barley harvest. Okay, that's the first three. Then God says this, I want you to count seven weeks. Well, seven weeks is 49 days. And then on the 50th day, which is Pentecost in Greek, 50th day, you're going to celebrate another holiday. And this is the wheat harvest. So it's the 50 days later and later in the agricultural season when wheat is harvested. The Book of Ruth is a Pentecost Shavuot um, book because she's gleaning wheat in Boaz's field. Then we go to the last, the fall holiday. So we've talked about a couple weeks ago, the Festival of Trumpets. That's on the first day of the month, of the seventh month, then the Day of Atonement, then the Festival of Tabernacles is where we're at today, and those are another agricultural feast, grapes and olives, and anything else that's left on the tree that you're going to bring in. Now, this is where our, this is similar to our Thanksgiving-type holiday, where you give thanks for the food that God has provided. And of course, this is where we're at today, Festival of Tabernacles, and we'll go through this whole idea. But notice it's at the very end, right? So that's important because God lays out these holidays to, to follow the agricultural season, but he also lays out these holidays as a picture of redemption. And we talked last week about this. It's, it's both on the, on the macro level, redemption for the whole world, but on the micro level, it's you as an individual. So God redeems Israel first. He gives us the picture. He brings them out by the blood of the Passover lamb, you go through a process of getting rid of the sin, the leaven in your life. You're born again in a way. You're resurrected, the first fruits, right? You're, you're taken out of Egypt. He takes you out to be with him at Mount Sinai, and you get the Spirit of God. And then, of course, yeah, well, we're going to sin. Everybody fails at some point. So the, we're in need of a process of 
getting back into connection with God. So God gives us that wake-up call of the trumpets and Day of Atonement. And then, of course, this now is we're going to be celebrating the joy of the Lord. So that redemption happens first with Israel, but then it happens with you as an individual. Now, the fact that it works at both levels, it may seem remarkable to us, but we have to remember, this is God who put this together. So this is not, it's not a fluke that it ends up being that you can follow the pattern that delivers all of us as Jesus is the, the Passover lamb, and we get the Holy Spirit, and we're called to confess our sins and repent. It's the same idea. And so this holiday right here is going to be a key holiday for us to celebrate because it's celebrating the joy of being back together with the Lord. Okay, so here's what I want to do. This is, I'm, don't follow along. I'm just going to tell you what we're going to do. So we're going to start in Leviticus 23. This is just my, um, this is my reading plan. I want to show you the progress that we're moving along. So we're going to start in Leviticus 23, and we'll read about tabernacles. We're going to go to Deuteronomy and read about the same commandment in Deuteronomy. Then we have to start looking at how did the celebrations of tabernacles develop. And we'll, we're going to take a little stop off in 2 Chronicles. That's when Solomon uh, dedicates the temple. We'll look at Isaiah, a couple places in Isaiah. We're going to go then to Zechariah. That's more of looking at the futuristic idea of tabernacles. And all of that will lead us to a very specific point in the book of John with Jesus. So if we don't understand all of this that's happening in the Old Testament, what is the holiday about? How did they celebrate it? What's the view agriculturally? What are they crying out for? If we don't understand all of that, well, then we get to John 7, and you just read past it, and you don't even think about what's going on. We, we lose the context. So all of that is building up to John 7 and Jesus celebrating this festival as part of his ministry, and what he says is perfectly fits the festival. So we have to know that background, that context. Okay. So Festival of Tabernacles, or booths, or shelters, or Sukkot, if you want to use the Hebrew word. And let's turn now, we'll look in Leviticus 23, if you're already there. We're going to look at this commandment here, and some of the details that go along with this commandment in Leviticus. So starting at verse 33, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month, that was Friday night, or starting Friday night, is the Feast of Booths. Now, that's the NASB. They call it booths, but it's tabernacle, it's shelter, it's whatever your Bible might say. So, it's the Feast of Booths for seven days. So, this gets a little bit confusing, but there's a seven-day festival, and then they're going to add an eighth day. Uh, you'll see in a second. So it's, it overall turns into an eight-day holiday. Verse 35, on the first day of, is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And then here they're going to add, on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by the fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. So we see... You have seven days, and then they add an 
8th. It's like taking the step beyond of having this sacred assembly on the 8th day. And I think there's something to that. If we go back to this picture of the holidays, if you read in Leviticus, Passover unleavened bread first fruits is described as a seven-day holiday. And seven, of course, is a number of perfection. Down here at the bottom, you get an eight-day festival, and it's almost like you're taking a step beyond. This is the, the Gospel of John does this too. He has seven signs and then says, boom, now we start off in this new creation that the first day of the week as John finishes his Gospel. It's like taking a step beyond. And this holiday, as we'll see today, this is the heavenly holiday. You've, your sins have been atoned for and now you're going to enter the joy of the Lord. So it's going a step further than just the perfection of here on earth. As, and I would argue the reason we should celebrate this holiday, as we'll see from Zechariah, is this is, a, this is what we're going to be doing in heaven. So it's almost like we're just practicing our joyful celebration of God here on earth, and it's like a test run. We're getting ready to go to, to enjoy that time in heaven. And we do it every year here on earth as well. Okay, so that's just the relationship between a seven-day and an eight-day holiday. So if we go back to Leviticus, what I want you to do is bump down a few verses to 39. So go down to verse 39, and it's repeating a little bit of the, of the same commandment. So on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of your land, so that's letting us know we're, we're in a Thanksgiving-type celebration. You shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now the first day you shall take for yourselves foliage from the beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, and willows from the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord. So right there, you shall rejoice before the Lord, is where we see the commandment to come before the Lord in a joyful way. You're going to bring the fruits of, that God has provided for you, and you're going to celebrate that in front of God. All right, now let's go to verse 41 to 43. So it says, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout the generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths or shelters or tabernacles or whatever your Bible says for seven days. So all the native born in Israel shall live in booths. If you remember from a few years ago, I showed you some pictures of people building booths in Israel. I mean, Jews do it here in San Diego. So all over the world at this time of year, people will have built a temporary shelter in their backyard, in their neighborhood, something where they're going to go out and celebrate, have dinner every night, invite guests into their sukkah. It's a big thing that you're going to do every year. And what's so cool is look at the next verse, verse 43. So that your generations may know. Now, how important is that statement right there? It's not just go do something. You're going to do this with your kids every year so that, your genera so that the, 
the generations that follow remember what you, where you came from. It's, it's history and our traditions that bring us the identity of who we are in the world and help us to move down the path of God. We have to know who we are first. That's why I think this, is, uh, this holiday is important for Christians, too, to go back and say, we're wandering in the desert at some point, too. So it's the idea that your generations beyond are going to understand what God did for you. Now, verse 43, so that the generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in shelters or booths when I brought them out of the land of Israel. So you're going to celebrate, and you think, if you think about this, it's a joyous celebration, but what you're celebrating is the time that you were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And that's time that you were living in a in your temporary dwelling. And I think that's almost like a celebration of life. We're all in a temporary dwelling here, and we're kind of wandering in the desert as we're moving towards God, or towards the promised land, I should say. And I think there's something about the human experience, too, that says sometimes the journey to get to the goal is more joyful than the goal itself. You know, have you ever gotten to your goal, like graduate college, and then you think, well, now what? Like, what do I do to, now that the goal has been met? I don't, you know, so you can see the Israelites, they get to the promised land, and then it's like, oh, geez, things didn't work out as we had expected. So it's an interesting idea about how we travel in the world and where our joy comes from. Sometimes it's from the journey rather than getting to the destination. That's the commandment in Leviticus. Um, celebrate for seven days. You have an eighth day. You're going to live in, in booths. That's going to remind you of your past. It's going to help your, the generations beyond understand where you came from. That's Leviticus. Now, I want to turn to Deuteronomy. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 16, because this is going to be a second time that we're going to see the commandment to celebrate tabernacles. Now, you can see we get the same, the same commandments, but I want to point out how God is going to bracket the command with joy. So it says, You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you've gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And then verse 14, And you shall rejoice in your feast. So there's the command. Rejoice. Now who? Who's supposed to rejoice? Well, basically, everybody. You, your son, your daughter, your male and female servants, the the Levite and the stranger, the orphan, the widow in your towns. Notice the Levite and the stranger, so that's the Gentile living in your land. They're supposed to come celebrate what God did for them as well. So everybody's supposed to come celebrate. Seven days you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord your God. That's starting in verse 15. In the place where which the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. And then it completes this by this sentence, and you will be altogether joyful. Now, some of your Bibles say, your joy will be complete. So God tells us to, to come before him and rejoice, and then he completes our joy when we do that. So if we go back to our review, you've got an eight-day festival. You've got the idea of joy. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then, as I mentioned earlier, 
we're going to find there's something about living water. Now, you ha- we haven't seen that yet because there's no, notice, there's no commandment in the Torah, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, that says anything about water. But when we start moving through the biblical text and the history of Israel, they're going to connect everything about this holiday to water. So we'll get there in a minute. Here's what I want to talk about, though, just to give an idea of the, this idea of coming before God in joy. So how do you command? This is, this is really the main question. How do you give a command to be joyful, right? Joy is a byproduct. So how do you command, right? I, when I was reading over this, I was thinking back to when I was in the Marine Corps, we used to have this saying, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Something like that. You know, it's, it's like when one bad thing after the next, or maybe you have a commander taking out all his frustration on the troops. It's like forcing you to fun. Oh, that's what we, we another one is mandatory fun. I'm sure this probably had mandatory fun on some days in the, uh, the Navy has those days too. We're going to force you to have fun. So I just want to explore the idea of joy. How do you command someone to go out and, and experience joy? So joy, it takes, we have to go look at the idea of joy here. The idea of joy, first of all, is relational. So joy is a byproduct of relationship. So you experience joy in relationship. And it's a byproduct of something that we could call like-mindedness. When two people are thinking alike, the byproduct of that is joy. So you experience a very deep sense of satisfaction. So if we could diagram this out and think about joy for a minute, you have you, you are there, you're like the center of the universe, and then you are constantly interacting with somebody else, other, whoever that is. And what we want to do is think about our like-mindedness. And how does this lead us to joy? And it would kind of go like this, if we diagrammed it out. If you said something, if you related to the other person, and in your relating to them, they totally get it, right? And they're able to swing that relation around and send it right back and at the full force so that you get it, and then you swing it back. And, you know, maybe you have a friend that when every time you get together, it's like you've never left from the last time you saw them. And, you know, time ceases to exist when you're with somebody because the joy, you can so relate to them that you're just, you kind of get lost in time, right? You've kind of entered eternity, something like that. It's when you're, you're able through your like-mindedness to enjoy something. So that's joy. That's the positive side. And I want to show you now, let's test it on the negative, because what happens when you don't get like-mindedness, right? So here's my example. We've done this before, but here's my example. Let's say you have a, we can all imagine this happening somewhere. You have a girlfriend and you have a boyfriend. And the girlfriend says, let's go, honey, let's go watch the sunset, right? And so you're watching the sunset, and she says to her boyfriend, you know, oh, isn't that sunset so amazing? And his response is something like, meh, like, eh, it's not so great. Well, what did he do to the, to the idea of joy, this getting joy? Well, he just truncated it, right? He just totally shut down the idea of joy, so that when it gets sent back to the girlfriend, 
she doesn't get the full, there's no like-mindedness because he's just, he's not into it, right? And that'll cause frustration, eventually anger, if it, you know, if it continues for long enough. So you can all imagine that when you're with somebody that you don't have like-mindedness, you say something and they just can't go along with it, that time then tends to drag on, you know, you go on a bad date and it lasted forever because it was just, you couldn't, you couldn't handle sitting there with that person. So you don't experience joy when there's no like-mindedness. Where on the other hand, if she were to say, look at that amazing sunset, and he came back and said, yes, it's totally amazing. Well, now he's swinging that back around and now they can go back and forth and have this relation that builds and builds and builds and becomes very cohesive. So joy is relational. Joy is like-mindedness. Now that's on the horizontal plane between two people. But what about you and God? What if we put it on the vertical plane? Well, you get the same idea. You stand before God and you say, thank you, God, for everything you've done. And God says, yes, you're welcome. And I'm going to swing that back around and I'm going to send you a blessing. And you go, yes, thank you, God, for your blessing. And you're so amazing. And when you can go back and forth with God and become like-minded with God, the joy of the Lord increases. Uh, It's like when Romans says, in the book of Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When your mind, when you become like-minded with God, you experience a joy that's beyond understanding. You begin to enjoy the, the, just the teeniest elements of God's creation because you're like-minded with God. You're celebrating. So I think part of when God says, come rejoice before me, the point is, go rejoice. Go stand there and rejoice. And what will happen is joy will start to emerge out of that. As you're praising God and God is sending down his blessings, the joy begins to emerge. And the more like-minded we become with God, the more we experience joy in the world, which in, in the middle of utter chaos, you can find joy. So joy is a powerful emotion because of it. it's so deep, but we have to remember it's relational and it's like-mindedness. So part of that is show up to the celebration and joy will begin to emerge even if you didn't feel like going that year. Something like that. Okay. So that's joy. Let's go now. What I want to do is take you from joy. So God says, come before me and rejoice. But they're going to eventually connect this to water. So the first thing we have to note about the Festival of Tabernacles is the festival itself is a salvation holiday. Now, salvation from what? Well, it's salvation from anything. They're crying out The shout of the crowd at the Festival of Tabernacles is Hoshana, and Hoshana means save now. Now, we say in Christianity, or in our English, Hosanna. Same word. We're crying out, Hosanna is a cry for salvation, or save now. Well, what what do they want to be saved from, or how do they want to be saved? Well, first and foremost... The seventh month of the year in Israel is just like the seventh month, well, September to October in San Diego. It's hot. It's dry. We haven't had rain uh, since March, maybe if we were lucky. So it's a cry to send rain. Send us living water, God. If it doesn't rain, 
we're not going to make it through the next year. We can't, we won't have, we won't have our, our crops. And if you've, you blessed us this year, now do it again by sending us rain. So living water is water that's been delivered by God. So the first time it rains here this year in San Diego, all y'all should go out and say, God, we bless you for the rain. And it's a blessing that God saved us once again from the rain. And after this week of the heat, we need it. So that's what they're crying out. And what happens is, one, the first through, one through seven days, you have these ceremonies where you're crying out to God for water, and you get to the seventh day, and it's called the last and greatest day of the festival, and it's called the Great Hosanna, the Hoshana Rabbah, where everybody's crying out for God to save rain or send rain. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus's Hebrew name, Yeshua, is God's salvation. So on this holiday, they're all crying out for salvation, and Jesus shows up and says, here I am. And now they're divided because they don't know what to do about that. So we'll see that in a minute with John. But it's a salvation holiday. We're sending us rain. Where do they get that besides the agricultural year? Well, turn with me if you would. We're going to walk through some texts, and I'll show you. You'll immediately see how they're connecting it to water. But the first place is 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and we'll just look at two verses. This is a really long prayer by Solomon. Solomon's dedicating the temple. Now, it just so happens, if you go back and you read that chapter 6, he's dedicating it in the seventh month. So he's right at Tabernacles as he's dedicating the temple they just built. and You'll see about his prayer, it fits the weather pattern of Israel. So 2 Chronicles 6, verses, verse 26 starts like this. When the heavens are shut up, right? So it hasn't been raining. That's the summertime. The idea, of course, in all the ancient world, and I think even today, when we think about this a little bit this way, rain is a blessing from God in all the ancient cultures. And so if, if Israel is sinning in Deuteronomy, God says, if you sin, I'll shut up the sky, meaning I'm not going to send you rain because rain is seen as a direct blessing. So if we just went through the holiday of Feast of Trumpets, where we repented and confessed our sin, and then we went through Day of Atonement and God forgave our sins, then the next logical step is for him to bless us with rain. So when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray towards this place and confess your name. Now, that's, that's day of, or, or Feast of Tabernacles and, and Day of Atonement. And they turn from their sins when you afflict them. That's what we just went through, repentance and forgiveness. Verse 27, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk. And once you forgive sin, what does he do next for a blessing? And send rain on your land, which you have given the, your people for an inheritance. So that you can, f very strong, because Solomon dedicating the temple, very strong connection of rain to Festival of Tabernacles. Okay, so that's our first little clue right there coming from, from Chronicles. Now, what I want you to do is keep turning in the same direction, kind of like NASCAR. Every Sunday, they turn in the same direction. Turn to Isaiah 
chapter 12, and we're going to look at just the first three verses of this. One thing that we should note about Isaiah 12, it's a little song. So it's a little poetic song that Isaiah has in there. The whole thing, Isaiah 12, gets connected to the Feast of Tabernacles, to Sukkot. So this is a Sukkot song. It's a song that everyone's going to sing, and you'll see why. They're going to sing this on the holiday of Tabernacles. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts like this. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Now, again, not to keep going back to this, but that's Festival of Trumpets and Day of Atonement, right? We had sinned. We came back. We came in front of you and confessed our sin and you forgave us. Your anger was turned away. Now, verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust in him and not be afraid. So they're recognizing God's salvation. That's the cry, Hoshana. For the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. And then now verse 3, because remember, the whole holiday is about joy. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, if we have a holiday about joy, where we're crying out for water, living water from God, then Isaiah 12 begins to fit perfectly. So again, that's just another clue, and this was one that was incorporated into this holiday. Now, keep it staying in Isaiah, real quick, turn to Isaiah 44, and this is just now verse 3, a very short verse, but I want to show you, we have to look at this prior to getting to the, the book of John. Because John's going to make the same connection as Isaiah is making right here in 44, verse 3. So, Isaiah, often difficult to understand because it's written in poetry. So, we have a couplet here. It starts like this. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Now, is that the only thing that Isaiah is talking about right here? Well, go to the second part of the couplet. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So you could easily say in a poetic couplet, we can connect water, the pouring out of water, with the pouring out of spirit. Now you'll see this is exactly what John does, but the, I, the metaphor of living water is the same metaphor of the Holy Spirit. And we can find that in Isaiah John will definitely connect it for us when Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, last one, last bit of forward turning until we get to the New Testament. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. And Zechariah chapter 14 is prophetically looking to the future. So Zechariah 14 And it's talking about, the whole chapter is talking about the day of the Lord, and we'll see later, this chapter then connects the one holiday that's going to be celebrated at the end of time is the Festival of Tabernacles. That's why this is a precursor to us in heaven, right? We're just going to practice being in heaven today so that we can know what we're doing later. And here's what Zechariah says, And in that day 
living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Now, what's living waters? Well, A, it's water delivered from God, but B, it's the Holy Spirit. So on that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the Eastern Sea, and the other half towards the Western Sea. Basically, all directions. It will be in summer as well as winter, meaning year-round. It's not going to matter what time of year it is. The Spirit of God is going to flow from the temple at all times. You don't need to wait for a certain time of year. Okay, now, given all of that, Chronicles and praying that God would send rain, Isaiah, the springs of salvation, which are the drawing of water from the springs of salvation, Zechariah and the living waters from God, all of that leads to that in Jesus' day, there was an elaborate ceremony, an elaborate ceremony about water. And every day during Sukkot in the morning, the priests would lead a, pr- a procession of the crowd, shouting Hoshana. They would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would take pitchers, golden pitchers, and they would pick up some water, and then they would process back up the hill. Many of you have walked through a tunnel that goes from the pool of Siloam back up towards the Temple Mount. They would walk back up that hill, they would go up to the temple, and they would pour the water out on the altar And that's basically saying, God, this is what we want you to do for us. So it's this joyous water-drawing ceremony. So it looks something like this. The temple, they imagine, you know, in the the Ten Commandments, God says, do not make any images from the waters above the earth or the waters below the earth. And they recognize there's water below the earth because every once in a while you see a spring just shooting out water somewhere that just comes right out of the ground, kind of like water from a rock. So we know there's water under there. And what we're praying for is that the rain clouds would come in. Because when the rain comes in and the water descends from above, well, then the springs, the water level must be rising under the earth as well because suddenly the springs pop out. And this is what happens in San Diego every December when we freak out in Mission Valley that the, that the San Diego River is flooding our, our path to get to Fashion Valley to go shopping. So it's the same thing. As the water's falling, the springs are rising. Now, this is what they want God to do. So what they do is a ceremony. And they bring out the pitcher. And they say, we're going to do this. It's a bit of, it's almost like sympathetic magic. This is what we want you to do, God. We're going to pour out the water, and when you do, the waters will rise, and we'll all be blessed by the water. And so this became a very elaborate ceremony. If you want to read about this ceremony, there's a book. It's actually a little bit hard to find in these days called Man and Temple by Raphael Patai. Anyways, if you're interested in learning about all of the stuff that went around Sukkot, it's really a, some fascinating stuff that they came up with, but this is a book that would be, you might find interesting. Anyways, that's the ceremony. Now, if we don't know all of that background, and including the ceremony that came out of it, because there's no commandment to do the water drawing ceremony, there's simply, they do it on their own. If we don't know all of that, and we get to John, then nothing makes sense. But if we do know it, and we get to John, 
things become clear. So the first thing I want you to do is turn to John chapter 7. Just go right to where verse 1 is. And just look at the title that your Bible translators give John 7. And of course, you'll, it'll make sense why we're turning there and talking about it today. So in the NIV, the title is Jesus Goes to the Festival of Tabernacles. So we know that at this point, Jesus is engaging this holiday in Jerusalem. So we know it's sometime late September to October. And we know exactly what's going on each day leading up to the last and greatest day of the festival, the Hoshana Rabbah, where literally it's like Super Bowl Sunday, millions of people, well, not millions, hundreds of thousands of people showing up to Jerusalem in celebration. So John starts like this. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go to Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Probably a good idea to avoid the place where people want to kill you. Uh, verse 2, but the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, so we know the time frame. Now, it's a seven-day festival, so he shows up and he's teaching during that, but I want you to turn now to verse 37 and verse 38, and all of what we just talked about in the last 45 minutes is going to suddenly make sense. So verse 37, look at how verse 37 starts. On the last and greatest day of the festival. That's exactly how the Jewish writings talk about that day, or the Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hosanna. So we know exactly what day of the festival it is. Thou hundreds of thousands of people crowding into the temple to praise God and cry out, Hoshana. And what does Jesus do? He stood and said in a loud voice to the thousands of people that could hear him, Let anyone who is thirsty, Come to me and drink. Now, just think about that. The whole celebration is about water. And what's Jesus' message at this exact moment? Water. He's going to declare that he's the living water. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, we'll talk about that in a minute because we don't know what scripture that is, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I don't know about you, but that's not coincidental that that's the message on this holiday. As they're all crying for salvation with living water, Jesus says, that's me. Come to me. I'll be the living, your living water. I don't know. To me, that's cool. Because it just shows me how connected, how deeply connected our, our Bible is and why it's so important to understand these holidays. Because we'll never understand that sentence if we don't understand the holiday. And how far back you can connect that and the profoundness of what Jesus is saying. Okay, you guys get all that. I know it. I'm just reiterating because it just makes me excited to see that. Um, one thing I, I should note. So I mentioned, verse 38 says, Whoever believes in me as scripture has said. Well, the problem is there's no scripture that says that. So we, we think, scholars think, well, Jesus is probably pulling from a number of different scriptures. You have um, Isaiah 12, the, the well of salvation. Ezekiel has a vision of the river of water of the, the Spirit flowing from the temple. Uh, you have Zechariah talking about the, the living water flowing. So some of your Bibles have a footnote, and I put the footnote here because I think there's an important piece to this. 
the the whole sentence, verse 38, is very difficult for scholars to translate, meaning it could it could go it could go in any direction. And so you have to think through, well, which direction should we take it, right? So on this little footnote, it says, let anyone drink who believes in me. That would be the end of his little sentence. And then, as Scripture has said, and you could translate the same, the, the last part of verse 38, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Will flow. So the question would be, why would we translate it out of him? Who's him? And some scholars say, they think it should be out of him will flow rivers of living water. And they think what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the new temple. I'm the place you come when you cry out for salvation. I'm the place where the Spirit's going to flow out of. I'm going to replace that temple over there. I'm the well of salvation that you'll come to. So, depending on how you translate that, you'll read it. You'll come out of it with different meaning, meaning but I think there's, there's a possibility here that Jesus is saying, out of him, which is he's saying means him, the rivers of living water will flow. Meaning, if we want to go draw from the well of salvation, we go to Jesus. Because that temple isn't going to no longer be there. Jesus becomes the temple in a sense. Anyways, I just want to point that out. Now, if you notice in John, if you, if you look at the very next verse in John, and I didn't put it on my screen, he says, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God. So John, just like Isaiah, connects the pouring out of living water He's going to connect the Spirit of God here with what Jesus is talking about. And notice it's a comment from John, not something that came out of Jesus' mouth. John's explaining what Jesus said. Okay, last, and don't turn there. I'm just going to go through it real quick because I've alluded to this a couple times this morning. Zechariah 14 paints a picture of the day of the Lord. It's the end times. And what's so cool about this and this holiday is. According to Zechariah, there's going to be one holiday that we're going to celebrate in the end times. It's the holiday that celebrates the reconnecting with God and the joy of the Lord. And that holiday, excuse me, that holiday, of course, is the Festival of Tabernacles. So again, we're, this is what we have to look forward to, right? Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year. So year after year. You get this picture of the nations of the world are ascending to worship the king. Well, who's the king? The Lord Almighty. It's Jesus. That's the picture of Revela- at the end of Revelation in the temple where the whole world comes to worship the king. And what holiday are we celebrating? To celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. I say all this week, start celebrating like we're in heaven today. Bring heaven to earth. We know we need more heaven on it being connected back to earth in these days. So let's celebrate and praise God and thank God for everything he's given us so that we can connect just like we will one day all experience in heaven, that we connect God's presence back to earth right now, even amidst the chaos. So quick review, it's a holiday of joy. So what do we do? Well, first of all, let's relate to God and relate to others in joyful ways and just go do it. Bring joy and God will draw the joy up in you. It's about living water, the Holy Spirit, crying out for salvation. And it's that heavenly holiday that says, here's what we're going to do 
in eternity. It's really an amazing picture of celebrating God for eternity. Okay, so that is the Festival of Tabernacles. And you'll have a whole nother year before we do this holiday again. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree today for this lesson. Don't forget to go to our website, figtreeteaching.com, and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month to highlight videos and to provide you with a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your biblical studies. Our prayer at Fig Tree Ministries is that the more you understand the cultural and historical context that surrounds the words of the Bible, the deeper that you can take God's word and impart it into your life.